Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me today is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard. Glenn is Russell L. L. Carson Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia, where he served as Dean of the Graduate School of Business. Glenn also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury and Chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. How are you today, Glenn? Uh, great, and th thanks, Tony. I, you know, when you and I wrote this uh, principles book, it really was to help explain the world in tough times, and we're in tough times. Absolutely. We want to use these podcasts to discuss the economic effects of the coronavirus pandemic. We're recording this one on Friday, April 10th. Glenn, let me start off by asking about monetary policy. The Fed's recent actions are unprecedented, even by the standards of their initiatives during the 2007-2009 financial crisis. Do you think the policies are likely to be effective? Is there more they might be doing? Are there things they're doing that might be ill-advised? It's a great question, Tony. I think it's important to realize how dramatic the Fed's actions are. Uh, yesterday morning at 8.30 in the morning when unemployment insurance claims came out with another devastating number, the Fed's announcement was right in parallel. And it really took the Fed's core responsibility as a lender of last resort, something that was important for the founding of the Fed itself, and expanded it into uncharted territory. The Fed is used to making markets for treasury securities or mortgage-backed securities even, or agency securities. But this took the Fed into territory of investment-grade corporate debt, of even some non-investment-grade corporate debt and uh, municipal bonds, and even small business lending. To see whether it's effective, I think one would want to see what's in the Fed's uh, wheelhouse. The Fed is used to doing uh, techniques that make markets work better. So as you get through things like treasuries, agencies, mortgages, and investment-grade corporate debt, that makes sense. I think where it becomes harder for the Fed, and they'll have work to do, is in junk bonds, high-yield debt, uh, in uh, municipal bonds, and especially in small and mid-sized business credit, where there's likely to be a lot of losses. And the Fed has some capital from the Treasury to do that, but how it does so, we're going to have to wait and see. Are you worried at all that the Fed's reliance on Treasury funding, as set out in the CARES bill, might have long-run implications for Fed independence? I think it is an issue. You know, Tony, you and I have talked about this a lot, both in writing the book and in our own conversations. And I would think of it in two parts. One, I'm a little concerned uh, as an economist that we depend too much on the Fed. The fact that we have a government that isn't as able to deliver the right fiscal policy makes us lean on a flexible and technocratic Fed. The Treasury did provide capital to the Fed as part of what was called the CARES Act that the Congress recently passed and President Trump signed. There's $454 billion of capital to support this new lending. If it's not enough and the, and the Fed winds up losing more money and has to go back to the Treasury, it will raise some independence questions. Having said that, in a time like this, much like during World War II, 
The Fed and the Treasury have to work together. The question is how to make sure that the ordinary course of monetary policy remains independent, and that is what we need to focus on. You raise an interesting point there because, as you know, uh, after the Treasury and the Fed collaborated during World War II, they ended up having to come to an agreement, the 1951 Accord between the Treasury and Fed, which in effect restored Fed independence. Do you think that this time around, the Treasury and the Fed are entangled enough that once we're at the other side of this, we'll have to go back and say, okay, let's spell out as they did in 1951, uh, what exactly the Fed's relationship to the Treasury is? I think that may be necessary, Tony. I think the difference between this and World War II is, I think we all thought World War II was the big war to end wars, and let's hope there isn't a World War III. Here, I think we have this uncomfortable feeling that we might be in these waters again. And so while I think there needs to be a disentangling at the same time, I think we need to be clear on a proverbial clear day about how the Fed and the Treasury should conduct their business. After all, from an Econ 101 perspective, it's all the taxpayer's balance sheet. Whether you call it the Fed or the Treasury, well, that's an accounting question. At the same time, the politics are real. And that was the point of your question about the accord. So I, I do think the Fed and the Treasury We'll have to have some discussions. I wouldn't call it a divorce, but maybe some marriage counseling. <laughs> I've heard people argue, you, you raised the point of politics, I've heard people say that really the Fed didn't actually need the Treasury's backstop because technically, this is one interpretation of the Federal Reserve Act, that they could always take capital losses anyway but that what they really wanted was to, in effect, get a sign-off from the Treasury that we're, we're um, standing up these new facilities that um, may end up causing us to take some losses, and we don't kind of want to do that on our own. We'd like the Treasury to explicitly be backing us so that even though, as you say, it's all one balance sheet, and if the Fed takes losses, ultimately the Treasury has to cover them. By making it explicit, uh, it makes it seem less that the Fed is sort of off on the frontier by itself doing things that it hasn't done before. Well, you know, Tony, you and I aren't lawyers, so I don't know what's legal, but I think the Fed did the right thing in seeking the Treasury's permission. The way I think about it is if the Fed took an accidental capital loss, in other words, it was making investments that shouldn't lose money but in exigent times did, I think that's fine. But when you're talking about lending in the high yield market, municipal bonds, um, small and mid-sized business, those are expected losses. Those aren't just after the fact. And I think you definitely need the Treasury's blessing. The explicit capital commitment is just accounting, but I think the blessing of the Secretary of the Treasury and the government is important. The Fed was not set up to subvert Congress in fiscal policy. The Fed was set up to be a lender of last resort to conduct monetary policy. I think we want our elected officials to be accountable to how the people's money is spent. And I think that's why the Fed and the Treasury did it the way they did. Although legally, who knows, maybe they could have done something else. One last question about uh, Fed policy. Some people have suggested that the Fed should 
follow other central banks and use a negative interest rate target. Uh, one argument in favor of that is that if um, everybody else, in effect, is, has a negative interest rate target and the Fed stays at zero to uh, a quarter of a percentage point for the Fed funds rate, that in effect, they're running a more um, uh, contractionary policy. Well, it's a great question, Tony. Sometimes interesting and appealing ideas are still bad ideas. And I think this is one of those. I, I can see why it has some appeal. You know, if I were a student with a student loan, wouldn't it be great if the bank paid me for borrowing the money? Uh, wouldn't that be great uh, for a homeowner? The problem with negative rates, though, is that they're causing enormous dislocations in the allocation of credit and finance. And also think of people who are living on their savings, older people who suffer as well. So I think it sounds appealing, but isn't. What a negative rate is telling you is that an economy probably needs additional shifts in aggregate demand from fiscal policy. So to me, a negative rate is a sign of a policy failure that we don't really have fiscal policy carrying the weight that it should. The U.S. has been more active in Europe uh, than Europe in that regard, and I think that may be one reason for the difference. The bold action the Congress and the President just took, I think, is another good example. So hopefully negative rates are not on their way to the United States. Okay, why don't we turn and talk about a micro issue? Uh, one thing that you see discussed quite a lot in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere is that many U.S. firms, Apple would be an example that comes to mind, have built global supply chains. They're often reliant on suppliers based in China. Is the pandemic likely to lead firms to rethink how their supply chains are organized? It's a great question, Tony. The way I think about it is over the past, call it 20 years, businesses in the United States and elsewhere have become much more efficient by thinking about their supply chain and, and trying to wring out extra costs. That's made prices of goods better for consumers. It's also increased business profits. And I think where businesses may have gone astray is becoming so slim and so focused on efficiency that if there's a disruption somewhere in the system, they're in trouble. In general, we know from economics and when students, uh, at least in business, take operations type classes, it's a good idea to have some redundancy, uh, particularly when you think about shocks like a pandemic that can affect multiple sources of supply. So I know people have been thinking about this as should I have my supply inside the United States or outside, where outside could be China or somewhere else. I think from an Econ 101 perspective, the way to think about it is do I want a single source of supply or do I want multiple sources of supply so that if I get in trouble, uh, I can switch? We know that with data centers and people in the technology business, I think people in regular businesses need to consider that too. Will it be a little bit less efficient? Probably. Will it raise some prices and cut some profits? Probably. But will it keep business operations uh, more sustainable in situations like this, uh, definitely. So I think businesses will start thinking about multiple sources. It's not necessarily the case it's China versus the US, the way you hear about it in Washington, but I, I think they will, they will think about that. 
you know, I view that as one of the many things that after the worst part of the shutdown is over, that businesses and governments are going to scratch their heads on. And I know you and I have been talking about this in the context of the book, you know, what are other examples where businesses and governments might want to think about how the world has changed after the pandemic has passed? One related point here that I think many of us have experienced is going into uh, a supermarket, particularly if it's one of the big chains or Walmart, and finding large sections um, uh, having been uh, empty, right? They called it, I think, stock out is the word that uh, Walmart would use if you go there and you're looking for toilet paper or uh, sanitary wipes or something and they don't have it. And some of that also is relatively recent because it used to be the case that most supermarkets had big warehouses. And if uh, unexpectedly there was a, a surge in demand for something, well, you know, they just send the trucks a few miles away, get the stuff from the warehouses and bring them in. But as you know, most of the big chains have moved away from that. In fact, Walmart has this sophisticated point of sale system where it, their, the information on their sales actually go directly back to Procter & Gamble and some of their other suppliers, and they set their, their production schedules accordingly. The pro, it's, it's great in the sense that the supermarkets and Walmart and so on spend less money keeping products sitting in a warehouse unsold, but we're seeing an example of where there's a problem because since the products aren't sitting in those warehouses anymore, it actually is necessary for their suppliers to ramp up production and then, and then ship it to them. So that's another area that um, maybe firms will rethink. I yeah, guess I you agree, Sony. Yeah, I was just going to add that I guess for many of these things, um, it will depend on how it appears to be going long term. In other words, will people think of this as a one-time pandemic. We had one in 1918. Here we have one in 2020. Can we, once we get to the other side of it, breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, okay, we're set for another 80 or 100 years? Or will they start to think, gee, you know, we had some other near misses with um, SARS and MERS and even the swine flu. Maybe it's time that we have to prepare for the possibility that this could be not a once in a century thing, but maybe a once every you know, three, five, 10 years. I couldn't agree more. I think business people will take that uh, under account in, in their planning. I mean, after all, when I think about the number of once in a hundred year events that we've all been through since 9-11, we had 9-11, we had the financial crisis, we've had this, they seem to be coming more than once every hundred years. So I, I think business people will start uh, preparing more. And frankly, governments and public health infrastructures need to start planning for some more redundancy too. That's an excellent point. Um, I, I was thinking back on 2001, and those of us who were old enough to be adults at that time, there was a feeling that um, perhaps this was the first of many large terrorist attacks in the United States and people were preparing for that. Luckily, we've had some incidents, but we've had nothing on that scale. So people kind of relaxed and, and went back to normal. 
it will be interesting to see if we see that same thing here, because I think people's default is, you know, I want to go back to normal. I usually eat out at a restaurant a couple of times a week. I like to go to concerts or I like to go to sporting events. Will they say, okay, you know, we, we've gotten through um, the, the coronavirus pandemic and I think I'll go back to doing that. Or will people be scarred at least for a while and say, gee, you know, I'm not sure I want to be squeezed into a table that's two feet away from someone else's table or be sitting there shoulder to shoulder with 30,000 other um, people at a college football game. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, while I look forward to going to a restaurant or my church or a theater uh, sometime in the near future, I can think as a dean, I used to shake 1,100 hands uh, at commencement. I hope that actually goes away. <laughs> you just have to bump elbows now. I think that's how it works. Yeah, or do a namaste. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thanks very much, Glenn. We can wrap up by reminding listeners of our new blog, HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com. We've already posted several updates related to the pandemic. We'll have new posts at least every few days, so please check back or subscribe, and you'll receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics Podcast. Until then, please stay safe. <laughs>